going this morning, I'm going to start with an awesome little video. <laughs> that was a really weird mixed reactions to the video. So anyway, uh, this is a, a video. Oh, he's already up there. I, I guess it's a short video. This is Richard Dawkins, who's sort of one of the most famous uh, atheists uh, alive today. And a real, just a great guy. So, um, yeah, so I really wanted to, I wanted to hear, this is a really famous quote, one of my favorite quotes, I love it, it's an amazing quote, um, from his book, The God Delusion, and he does it here for us, and I thought it'd be so much more interesting than having me read it, right? So, so, so go ahead, Brian, hit that for us. The, the best candidate, I suppose, for strident in The God Delusion, maybe the only one, is the opening two sentences of chapter two. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> great quote that's fantastic i love it i love it i really like dawkins i like dawkins because i like that uh he shoots straight you know it's like no middle ground i like no middle ground people like i like that i hope you could hear that through the awesome accent how many of you want that accent i could listen to that i would pay more attention to jordan if he talked in that accent it's a great quote. Um, it's a great quote for lots of reasons. I think, to some extent, we simply, uh, we simply recognize, of course, that this might be the perspective of an atheist. I, I appreciated the, uh, the uh, heavy applause that kind of followed that. Like, this was a really um, great way of putting it. The issue that I think with this is that Christians, I think, feel very similar about the Old Testament and the New Testament when I, we talk about God. Uh, one of the problems is we use, we use the word God to kind of catch everything that we mean. Um, when we say Jesus, we mean God, which is true, but Jesus has kind of got, a, got, that nice, got a nice name um, to it, kind of a very humanizing name, where in the Old Testament we just talk about God or the Lord or those of you who are like super Christians and know the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, like you were able to say that, and so that's a little more intimidating. But either way, I think we draw this stark distinction. Today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 15. When we think of God in the Old Testament, we often think of God in terms of a rule-keeping, uh, what Dawkins pointed out, maybe Christians wouldn't applaud, but we would say, you know, God is very, he's rule-oriented. We have this God who's got just this list of do's and this list of don'ts, and he's kind of the God who takes you to jail when you're not perfect. But when we think about the New Testament, we think of Jesus, right? And Jesus is kind of like freedom for everyone, you know? Forgiveness, and you get forgiveness, and you get forgiveness, and love your neighbor, and he just kind of, he lets everybody go. And so while we wouldn't echo Dawkins and say, well, God's a, I can't even know, I don't even know if I can say it right, megalomaniac, they put that, Got that clo- it got close anyway, right? We wouldn't say that about God, maybe, but we would, we would see a stark distinction between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. This is the way I think commonly 
we think about God. And one of my challenges today, one of the things I want to accomplish in this series, one of them I discussed last week, and that is to get you interested in the book of Deuteronomy, just because it's great. But the second thing I'd like to convince you is that the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And that all the grace and gift that we see in Jesus is given to us all the way back there in Deuteronomy. That God is not, in fact, this evil jail dragging off people <laughs> jail God, but rather a God of love and of grace. That all begins in the Old Testament. So let's put ourselves in the place of the, the Israelites. They are, they are in Egypt. I think I even got a map for this. Yes, they are in Egypt. Now, Egypt, again, is the cultural heart of the world at this time. This is like New York City. This is like Hollywood. This is like Atlanta. You are going to the place where all of the things, all the culture, all the, everything is, is happening here in Egypt. And God sends them where? All the way here to the wilderness, then up into the land of Canaan. This is like, this is like going from New York City, the Big Apple, to Kalamazoo. <laughs> I was going to say Vicksburg, but I didn't want to be offensive. Where's Jack? Is Jack? There he is. Was that the Big Apple this week? Sent me a little video of, of walking through Times Square. It's, it's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's the cultural center. It's the heartbeat. And why does God take them from the center of the world and take them out into the wilderness? Why didn't he just, ever thought about this, why didn't he just have them take over Egypt? I mean, they're all, everything's already in place. That's where everybody's looking to for their cues. Why not just take over where they're at? Instead, he drags them to the middle of nowhere because he is building a new culture, right? We talked about this last week. He is building a new people. My arrows got messed up there, but you get the point. We talked about culture being this cluster of activities. Culture is built upon worldview. What is the world around me? What, what, what makes things happen? What is, what is all of this stuff around me? And then we ask the question, how do I plug into that world? Who am I in relationship to the world around me? And then lastly, what are the practices that, that are happening? How do I live that out? Like This is what it is to be a part of a culture. And this is what God is building. God is giving to them a new worldview. He's giving them new identity. And he is imbuing that reality with practices with how they are going to live their daily lives. And the grace of God abounds here in Deuteronomy chapter 15. So if you've got your Bibles, grab Deuteronomy chapter 15. Page 158, if you are... Um, if you're using the Pew Bibles there. And I want to start by reading just the, few for, the first few verses of this, of this chapter. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. Now, seven years, seven has a significant significance, doesn't it? Because every seventh day is the... Sabbath day. And Sabbath day is a day of rest. It's a day when, when everyone takes a break. Animals, land, people. You are to enjoy life. 
Maybe you hate your job six days a week, but we all look forward to the weekend, right? God built this into his, into his people. And here he is building something economic. I understand that economics might not be your, your favorite thing when Emery is in the car and I'm driving her to school and NPR is rolling and they're talking about the S&P numbers and Emery yells from the back, no more news! <laughs> Music, she says. And I say, when you get a job... You can determine the radio station. (laughs) So some of you, I say economics, and you're like, whoa, tune in, out. But hold on with me for a second. Because this is really, really good news. God is building a culture, and a part of that culture has to be an economic system. And here he says, every seven years you shall grant a release, And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he, he has lent his neighbor. He shall not exact it from his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. How many of you know this word, debt? Some of you are really honest folks. <laughs> like, I didn't even ask for hands to go up, and they went up immediately. No one stood up and shouted, though. That was good. The average American citizen carries about $130,000 in debt. It's like $21 trillion, I think, it looks up for the United States as a a whole, $21 trillion. In fact, one of the things that just, as a side note, you should think about as a Christian is how that housing crisis, which spoiled everything, uh, taught us about the Tower of Jenga that is society. Because all you do is pull one out and the thing goes over. Any confidence you have in any system, throw it out the window. You've seen it, right? But what's interesting here is that we we have a sense of debt. And if you've ever lived with debt and you've ever been in the situation where the creditors are calling and there's not enough to buy food or necessities or there's not enough to pay the rent and these, these other bills that have come due, you understand the pressure. In fact, one of the first and most crippling things that happens, that kills marriages, is money trouble. I mean, how many married people have run into money trouble together? Had that fight. Laura and I have run into that. It's, it's that external pressure. And you're so worried about, what do we have here? We have this good word. And every seven years, the creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever is yours, this is verse 3, with your brother, your hand shall release, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. I'll, I'll stop there with reading this particular text. But I want you to see this in operation. This in operation. Because this is exactly what we see here in this text. The practice is clear. The practice is right there. What happens when you run out of money? What happens when things go badly? What happens when you get a loan? You receive that back. The person lets, lets go of that. In fact, every, every seventh, seventh year, which is what this one is, every seventh, seventh year, what number is that, those mathematicians out there? 49th year is called the year of Jubilee, which is celebration, right? Jubilee, yay! Right? It will be a year of Jubilee to you 
Because when this happens, each of you shall return his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a year of jubilee for you. You shall not sow it, nor reap what grows of it, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vine, for it is jubilee, and it shall be holy to you. Let me put that in layman's terms. If you live next door to a huge farm where they've, the guy's just been really successful and he's been gobbling up property because the people around him have not been as successful and maybe they're functioning like sharecroppers now but their land no longer belongs to them. It belongs to that baron down the road. This kind of, that, that, 70, that seventh, seventh year, 49th is going to be easier to say, let's do that. That 49th year, all of the land goes back to the original homes. So not only is there a remission of debt every seventh year, but all of the land returns in that seventh, seventh year. This is the principle of the Sabbath. That's, that's what's happening here. Who likes this law? Every seventh year, your debts are forgiven. Who likes that law? Well, I mean, I wasn't asking for your endorsement. I meant putting yourself in the ancient context. What are the group of people? <laughs> I like the amen. Thank you. Uh, what are the group of people that are like, great, I can't wait for that? People in debt, the poor. Who are the people who don't like it? Right? I mean, you've done really well. You have worked really hard. There's a few people who owe you. And what are you going to say? Isn't that interesting? That God is building into his culture a perspective. And so keeping in mind that kind of Richard Dawkins attitude and maybe even your own attitude about the God of the Old Testament, maybe being capricious, maybe being malevolent, maybe at least not being as nice as the God of the New Testament, as nice as Jesus. What does this tell us about the character of God? What does it tell us about the character of the people that he wants in fact, you might, you might say that God here has a preferential option for equality. And he is exercising that in his people, making sure that every seventh year you get a second chance. Couldn't we use that? Does it sound like an evil, malevolent God to you? Does it sound like a God who favors the powerful and the wealthy? Or does it sound like a God who is concerned for the well-being of the whole of his people? Right? Now this isn't to say that, uh, that no one will ever be broke or anything. But, but here we see this sense in which all of this is being worked on here. The practice is, is clear. What you have to do if you're a creditor is let it go. Why? That moves up to identity. Why? You read it in the text. Why do you let it go? Because God says, right? That's a rule-keeping God. It's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. You're God's people. That every Israelite around you is your brother or your sister. Now what happens when your family runs into hardship? You get a phone call, right? My sister calls me and says, she hasn't, but let's just, you know, I don't want to malign her. She's very responsible. Uh, she calls me up. Things are hard, Jordan. Can I, can I borrow some money? Your sister calls you and, and says, can I borrow $1,000? A lot of money. 
Your neighbor comes and knocks on your door. How many of you got neighbors? Knocks on your door and says, hey, things are rough. Can I borrow $1,000? Is your attitude different? At least some of you are like, well, I'm not giving anybody any money. I understand how you are. I understand that. But at least you might be more inclined to offer your sister, right? And let's say that there comes a point where things don't get better. And she can't pay you back. Is your attitude going to be inclined to exact that money back or interest? Like, hey, it's taking you a year to give me that grand back. I'd like to see 10% of my investment. Now it's your sister, right? There's a difference in attitude immediately. And so what do we have? The identity that is being built into the people of Israel is this isn't just your neighbor. This isn't just the guy that lives next door to you. This isn't just the lady behind you. This is your family. And family takes care of family. Even a pagan culture, no matter where you are at, gets that idea. God is building that. The entire people of Israel, their family. And because that is their identity, it changes the way the world around them operates. How do I handle money? How does our economic system work? It works differently in Israel because every seventh year, fresh start. Because family gives family fresh starts. Your parents have done it for you. My parents have done it for me. We do it for our children. We do it for our cousins. We do it, but we, we understand that. That's what God is building into this people. We see that at work here. And fundamentally, we get this. There's still gonna be poor people. But there's still gonna come times where this is you, <laughs> So I started off, just side note, I started off with the Monopoly card idea, and it's just got, it just kind of kept going. It just got worse. It's this like mind spiral of Monopoly guys. So anyway, this is still going to happen. There are going to be times when people run into bad harvests. There's going to be times where maybe you're not very good at what it is that you do, and you run into an issue, and you kind of sell yourself into indentured servanthood. That seventh year, you're set free. And God commands within the law, you aren't to, if you're setting these people free, you, you, can't, you can't exact more from them. You send them on their way with your blessing. What God is doing is not saying there's never going to be any poor people among you, but rather there is no functionally poor people among you forever and ever and ever. There's not a system that exists in Israel that perpetuates poverty. And if you've ever lived in poverty, that is good news. That is good news. Now, the prophets echo this. If you want to continue looking at your Bibles, we'll fast forward quite a ways to, to Isaiah 61. The prophets who are God's covenant enforcers, they're the people who are speaking out against the evils that they see in society. And they're saying, this is not in keeping with way, the way that God set us to live our lives. And they begin to foretell a time where, where things will finally become right again. You know, it's so interesting, this idea of this idea of debt being forgiven. You know, that's written into our prayers. Forgive us our debts. Trespasses, sins is an inaccurate translation. I'd like to die on that hill. It matters, right? Because debts can be 
things like sins. They can be things like trespasses, but they can also be what? Money. And God has built into Deuteronomy, you are a people who forgive debts. Whether we're talking about wrongs or we're talking about cash. And Jesus reminds them when he says, you pray this, Lord, forgive our debts. How big is your debt to God? As we forgive our, whatever it is, whatever it is that people owe you, it is less. So interesting. Isn't it interesting? You notice that number seven that we've been talking about over and over again? The seventh day is the Sabbath. Good. The seventh year is the Sabbath year. The seventh, seventh year (laughs) is the year of Jubilee, a Sabbath year again. Isn't it interesting that when uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, listen, when somebody wrongs me, how often should I forgive them? Do you remember what Jesus says? Seven times seven. Boy, I've heard that before. Jesus is echoing Deuteronomy. He's saying, listen, if you, if you think that this is just about cash, it's about so much more, it's about everything. God is calling a people who will look like him in forgiveness. In forgiveness. Who both receive and give it. The prophets are echoing forward a time when this will actually happen. In Isaiah 61, we have this beautiful vision. It kind of moves forward from 61 through the rest of the book. But this vision of a future world that will be inaugurated by an agent from God. And one of the things that we have to think about when we think about heaven is we need to push from our brains clouds and fat baby angels and ghosts and all these other things. What you should think about is you should look out your window or out the windows here and you should look at the world that God has made. Imagine it on its most perfect and beautiful and not Michigan weather day. (laughs) Magnify that to perfection. And you've achieved something like what God has in mind for creation. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. Sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort those who are mourning, to grant those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of the oil of mourning and ashes of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of God, that he may be glorified. In the perfection that God has planned, where does debt sit? Where does hunger sit? Where does want sit? Where does slavery sit? Where does sorrow and death sit? They're expunged. In some ways, they're being expunged right here and now, 3,000 years ago, right? Within the context of ancient Israel. And the prophets come to Israel and say, Why are you not practicing what God has commanded And subverting his will so that you oppress the poor, the widow, and the orphan. God's judgment will come to you just as it will come to all the nations. 
But a time is coming. A time is coming when these words will become reality. When they will be true. When they will manifest themselves and enter Jesus. In Luke chapter 4. What does Jesus say? In Luke chapter 4, he enters the synagogue and he opens the scroll and he reads some familiar words to us, doesn't he? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's declared, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim jubilee. To proclaim jubilee. And he rolls up the scroll and he sits down and everyone says, what in the world? And then Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now take all of that into your mind. I know we've just had a, a, a sort of a, a jaunt through all of scripture. <laughs> There's a lot to take in. We just hold that in your mind. You've got to be sitting there as an Israelite saying, "He's talking about this is talking about the time to come when God finally sets things right. And it's talking about the things that we never really did very right that he commanded us to do back in Deuteronomy 15. And now you're saying it's happening? How is it happening? Because if you're in debt or you're a captive or you need liberation from some addiction or from sin because you're alone and you're tired of it, because you need help or you need a God to step in and set things right, you're wondering, when is this going to happen? And Jesus says, it's happening. The question, of course, is how is it happening? Well, it's happening here. It's happening here. Or at least it's supposed to be happening here. We see the early church grab a hold of this. Acts 4. So Jesus dies. He raises from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He brings the Spirit, and the Spirit fills the people. And we read about this people that is being called forth. A treasured possession to God, just as the ancient Deuteronomy, we see that happening there in Deuteronomy. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said they had any possession that belonged to his own, but they held everything in what? Common. The apostles were there, all this is happening, and there was what? Man, does that sound familiar to you? Right? In case you missed it, the exact thing that God was doing back in Deuteronomy. The exact same thing. Being enacted among the people of God. That which had been told to them that they should have practiced, now is finally being practiced. Today it is being fulfilled in your midst. Now the problem, because there is a problem, there's a problem back in Deuteronomy where people were like, you know, if you have amassed great wealth and great lands, we, we have no record of them ever living the Sabbath year. We have no record of any year of Jubilee. Now, maybe it was practiced, but we have no record of it. No one's ever mentioned it. It's like it's this law that just kind of gets left aside. How does it happen? I think the problem is that we sort of assume that, you know, God's going to show up, give you a bag of money, and send you on your way. Is that how it happens? No, it's not how it happens. This is how it happens. For as many of them uh, as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
What I love about this is that you'll notice a characteristic that is different from Deuteronomy to Acts. Any idea? This is not a law. Do you notice that? In Deuteronomy, it was a what? Law. This is how y'all are going to live your life. And Acts, where's the law? Where to go? When you have kids, you lay out right from wrong. And kids always find what? Loopholes. <laughs> and all of God's parents said, Amen. As you know this. They find loopholes. This is what we do. And as adults, let's not pretend we still find loopholes, don't we? Well, I don't know if that was written in the Bible, but. Because it's impossible as a parent to anticipate all of the situations. Just like Peter coming to Jesus and saying, now how many times do I need to forgive? Where's the loophole here? There's got to be kind of like a limit to mercy, right? There has to be a limit. Where I stop putting myself out there to be wounded by this individual. And Jesus doesn't give laws like that. His law is love. Which is what Paul, the apostle, latches on as one of the fundamental differences. It isn't that God of Deuteronomy and the God of Jesus and the God of the early church are different. It isn't even as though their perspectives are different. God has made our lives more difficult. Praise Jesus. Before, you had a nice law. Every seven years, you're to forgive. Now, How often do you forgive? I don't have a law for that. But if our law is love, and God has graced you with such immense and immeasurable grace, forgiving your debts that you have owed to him, what ought you to do for one another? And then the Spirit does its work. I have seen that beautifully at work in our church. In fact, today, somebody gave me something to give to someone else. My exhortation is not to this church as a prophet that says, y'all are going to experience the judgment of God because you're selfish. No, in fact, I am so proud to be a part of ODCC because I see this at work all the time. So my word to you is this, make it happen more. What was Israel to be? It was to be a shining light In a world that believes their worldview, the worldview of the people you work with, the worldview of people all around you, the worldview of every politician and banker and all those other people who really, is this. We live in a world that is scarce. And I need to take everything I can and hold it tight, lest I not have enough. But you belong to a God who says, that is a lie. That is a lie. You also belong to a God who is pragmatic and says, that doesn't mean you all get Lexuses. It does mean there is enough for us all to be happy and to go, go around. But in order for us to enact 
This good act, not only that we see in Deuteronomy, but we see echoed in Jesus and the prophets, and then we see lived out in the early church, we must have community. You cannot accomplish this grand and gorgeous vision on Sunday morning. An hour where you hear singing and you hear me, and you shake a few hands and you leave the building. You can't do that here. You need more than this. You need to be a community. And a community needs three things in order to be happy like this guy. That's, that was what I was trying to communicate visually. You need proximity. Proximity to one another. You cannot be in community and not be near somebody. This is why what Paul said was just so spot on for our community meditation. God came to build a people, a culture of people who now belong to him and to one another. That as you look around this room, you do not see neighbors, you do not see friends, you see, you see, family. And family, by definition, lives in proximity to one another. And not just every now and then, but with regularity. Because if you are going to tell me the debts that you are bearing, and everyone in this room, I would suggest, is probably bearing a debt. Whether it is shame or guilt or sin, or whether it is bills, bad economic decisions, more than you can handle, a loss of a job, family struggles, whatever it is, you are bearing something. And the only way that you will begin to share that burden is if you can trust one another. And the only way you're going to trust one another is what? By meeting together regularly. I see that at work here as well. I commend you for it. And I plead with you to make it happen more. And finally, generosity. You know, in the Old Testament, there were rules and regulations. There were lists of things. This is how much you give here, and this is how much you give here, and this is how much you give here. In the New Testament, Jesus says, love. And you get to decide what the price tag is on love. You get to decide what the price tag is on love. Wouldn't it be better if we were back in Deuteronomy? (laughs) Because that sounds so much more expensive to me than just here, here, and here. Seven years you forgive. God is a God of love. He has always been a God of love. He has always been a God of generosity. He has always been a God of grace. He has always been a God of gift. From Genesis to Revelation, the image is the same. And God is calling to himself a people who will be markedly different in their worldview, in their identity, and in how they live their lives. And it begins with this. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just, Jesus says, as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all of the other people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So take this out with you. Let this be your worldview. Let this be your identity and let this be your practice. Let's stand as we sing praise to our God.